I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, journalist, and co-founder and chair emeritus of Children and Nature Network, Richard Louvre. His new book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Everyone has a story of how an animal changed their life, and Richard Louvre listens, learns, and expands upon each listener and host story about an animal experience. Through interviews with researchers, theologians, wildlife experts, indigenous healers, parents, teachers, and psychologists, he reveals how dogs can teach children ethical behavior, how animals in urban areas are blurring the lines between the domestic and the wild, and what role the human-animal relationship Plays in our spiritual well-being. He explores urgent topics. He explores urgent topics such as biodiversity, interspecies health, and unprecedented conservation practices, including the proposal to set aside half of the planet for nature and wildlife and the assisted migration of invasive species. In 2008, he was awarded the Audubon Medal, presented by the National Audubon Society, and has been featured on the Today Show, CBS Evening News, and NPR's Fresh Air. Welcome to the show, Richard. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. All right. Well, that's this book covers a lot of territory. And um, I guess to me, it, it just the, the title uh, is, is inspiring, How Animals Can Transform Our Lives, because it seems to me today we're paying less, as a society, less and less attention to our animals, their survival, our environment, all of those kinds of things uh, under our present or current situation, administration, whatever you want to call it. So uh, you have quite a challenge ahead, I guess, or you've, you've always sort of adapted this challenge but how can how do we can let's be specific so how are we connecting how do animals transform our lives well both wild animals and our companion animals uh, can change our our lives Um, certainly we're familiar as kids with with our pets and in fact as as kids we're a lot more sensitive to this we um uh, you know, we're touched deeply by our uh, our dogs. One woman told me a, a brief story. She said she walked into her living room one day. She had a large dog and a six-year-old son, and they were stretched out together on the carpet, and her son had his arm over the, the dog, and they were side by side. And she heard her son say, Mommy, I don't have a heart anymore. And she said, what are you saying? And her son, without looking up, said, my heart is in Jack. Jack was the name of the dog. I think that kind of permeability, that kind of closeness, we're capable of more when we're kids with other animals. We retain that with our companion animals. But I believe we can also have moments like that with wild animals. And we do, but we often don't even notice. So for you, let's maybe start back with your own personal experience. Like, how did you become, well, first of all, interested in all of this as a young person yourself? I mean, did you have that kind of transformative experience that you're describing with this little boy? Um, or how did your interest or your feelings about animals evolve with you personally? I did. It's one of the reasons I can relate so much to the little boy and his dog, Jack. I had a dog named Banner, and it was a collie. And he spent uh, 
much of my childhood with me in the woods. My parents didn't know always where I was, but Banner did. And, uh, you know, our, our dogs, our, our companion animals often are bridges into the wild. They take us outdoors. Uh, they take it, they do that with us when we're adults as well as when we're children. But he did amazing things as everybody's dog when their kids do. But, um, he did pull me out of the water in a creek when I went through the ice. You know, he did, uh, protect a woman up the street when she was attacked by another dog. She, uh, came down later in tears and, and thanked us. Uh, he's an extraordinary dog. And I always thought that he's, he taught me a kind of ethics. I said that one time to an animal behavioralist who dismissed me and said, no, that's just anthropomorphism. You're just romanticizing the dog. Uh, and then I was doing the research for Our Wild, Our Wild Calling, the, the new book, and I ran across some German research that takes a contrarian view to the idea that we domesticated gray wolves into dogs. Uh, it could be that they domesticated us, or probably both of those things are true. And uh, we followed their uh, packs as they hunted. We watched how cooperative they were, how good they were to each other in their families. We probably learned from that, our ancestors. And that, the, the, the German uh, researchers actually used the word ethics. So I, I felt... Uh, uh, good about that, having been dismissed for that assumption. Uh, well, and I think yeah, when you just interrupt you there, that. you're talking about uh, animals teaching us ethics, and that is an example. Uh, but Richard, also, and you've interviewed psychologists, as I read in the beginning, psychologists will tell you that the first thing, you know, when they're trying, like in diagnosing, like somebody who's a sociopath or a psychopath, is they, very, from the very beginning as children, they usually abuse animals. So it's the opposite of the ethical person. And they do use that as a criteria for for diagnosing people with severe um, psychiatric disorders, like sociopath or psychopath, like Jeffrey Dahmer, for instance, is one extreme example. You're right. And uh, we do know the science does show us that... Uh, Having animals close by when you're a kid also imparts empathy. And if there's one thing that this book is about, it's about empathy. Empathy not only with our our pets, but with the coyote that goes through our backyard and stops and looks us in the eye. The uh, all of those experiences we we have and could have more of if we simply pay attention. Indigenous healers, I mentioned that too. That's something else that you talk about in the book. Uh, you talk to indigenous healers. People, you know, our animals have a healing. Uh, a, they use animals in hospitals with old people and sick people, and, and they, there's a real healing component to that usually as part of their therapy, as, as part of the patient's therapy. Um, and, and I think we're doing more and more of that. Um, there is. Um, and... Uh, you know, in high, in hospitals, in, in uh, assisted living homes, homes for uh, people who have memory issues later in life, uh, you'll see dogs and cats and, and animals, sometimes wild animals, they'll be in cages, but in, in the facilities. Uh, now there's a, this curious competition. Uh, there are more and more robot pets being, 
being sold, actual robot dogs that sometimes can do good things for people with severe memory issues or dementia. Uh, but I, I write a, a section, there's a section in our walk calling called The Replacements about the tendency to believe that technology can give us what real life can and, and the rise of these um, uh, you know, uh, nature replacements through technology. Well, are they replaced? You say replace. Does it have to be a replacement? It can be an adjunct, something. Or does it have? I mean, it it, yeah. it can be an adjunct, but uh, I think that that can go into some bizarre territory. I mean, there's more and more combining of animal genetics, uh, pig genetics with monkey genetics. There's work now in China on that to, to use technology to create new creatures. Chimera is what they're called. Uh, that I think that that direction is not going to do our species any any favors. We need other animals. One of the uh, issues that I spend the most time on, it's a theme throughout our wild calling, is a theme of human loneliness. There's, as you know, there's an epidemic of human loneliness in the world. And medical folks are beginning to say that uh, loneliness, human isolation will soon outpace obesity as a cause of early death, not only because of uh, uh, suicide, but also because of all the diseases that are associated with loneliness. I, I think that that, is, uh, that loneliness comes from a lot of places. People blame Facebook a lot and, and anti-social media, but I think that that comes deeper. Uh, I think it comes, it's rooted in Species loneliness, our loneliness as humans, for our disconnect from nature, which in the prior books I've called nature deficit disorder. Um, and, you know, the parks, the urban parks that have the best benefit for human psychological well-being, according to the studies, are the ones with the highest biodiversity. I don't think that's an accident. We're desperate not to feel alone in the universe. And we do all kinds of things to not feel alone. And the irony is that we're not alone. Some people have a religious uh, uh, approach to that. Uh, But with or without religion, we are not alone. There are animals all around us. There's a great conversation going on all around us. Intimacy is all around us, but we usually don't pay attention to it. But we can learn to, and that's much of what this book is about. All right, let's continue. Let's talk more about learning to to first of all, we have to be aware, but second of all, to take to how we can avoid this loneliness because there's, as you're saying, in reality, there's really no need for it. We we don't have to be lonely. Um, so, what step by step, what do we need to do? Well, first, just a brief story. Um, I interviewed a, a fellow named Alan Rabinowitz who grew up in Brooklyn. And he had such a bad uh, uh, difficulty with stuttering that he basically stopped communicating with other people as a boy when he was four or five. And then something remarkable happened. His, his, his father took him to the Bronx Zoo, and he became very fascinated with a jaguar in a cage. And his father noticed this, and he would take his son uh, back again and again to the zoo, specifically to sit in front of that jaguar. And it was a sullen jaguar. It didn't want anything to do with people. And slowly it began to come up and, and look at little Alan. 
And over time, he began to speak, Alan did, to the Jaguar. And he realized that he wasn't stuttering, that he could say anything to the Jaguar, and the Jaguar listened. Uh, and over time, this helped him greatly with his stuttering. And he made a vow to that Jaguar that when he grew up, he would take care of the giant cats. And he started something called Frontier when he grew up, uh, which is an organization that protects jaguars throughout Central America and South America and even into the United States. So that, that ability, uh, you know, first it begins with listening and noticing. And he was primed for that because he'd quit communicating with other people. Uh, I think uh, that's where it starts. Uh, there are some people that are learning bird language. A fellow named John Young that I profile in the book is uh, teaching. He's in a Bay Area of California. He takes hundreds of people out into the forest where they learn bird language. Now, bird language isn't just tweeting. <laughs> it's um, their behaviors, their movements, uh, all of that. And uh, people do learn bird language and can get so good at it that they can tell from the birds when a cat is going to come around the corner. John is that good. And what he so talk to, elaborate on that. I'm fascinated with that, Richard. Uh, so what are you saying? So it's yeah. not just the tweeting, uh, which many of us just no. do is tweet, by the way, but um, it has to do with <laughs> yeah, what, <no. laughs> but yes, body language. And what do you mean? Like how the birds move their, their wings, or let's say you're trying to communicate or learn the language of a bird. How do you, what do you do? Well, not not just birds. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, we don't have just five senses. The people who study scientists who study our senses talk about as many as uh, conservatively nine or ten. Some talk about as many as thirty human senses. Uh, we we have the ability to use the, the what bats do with echolocation. Uh, we have the ability to follow a trail through the woods just with our nose. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we do and sense that we block out uh, as we spend more and more time looking at screens. Uh, you know, we create those kind of learning environments for kids in our schools. And we spend a lot of time, so do our kids, blocking out as many senses as we can. That, to me, is the very definition of being less alive. What parent wants their child to be less alive? So some of it is using these senses that we don't, even know that we have, um, you know, and elephants, for instance, generate seismic activity with their feet and their trunks to communicate, communicate with each other over hundreds of miles. Uh, bats in, hanging in cages, they argue with each other. They, they criticize each other and they know that it's individually focused because the bat sounds are specific to the individual bat the bat is complaining about. They're quite grouchy. Um, horses have more facial expressions than dogs. This has been recently found out. They're second, of the animals that have been studied, they're second only to humans. The reason that we don't tend to know that is because those facial expressions are so minute and so quick. A horse whisperer can detect those, somehow has the ability to do that. They've been sensitized to horses to the point where they actually pick those signals up. With birds, the behavior um, 
is how they move, and without going into too many de- details, how they move, what they sound like, the alarm sounds that they make that are quite specific. Some squirrels know those alarm sounds and imitate them to warn other squirrels. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on around us that we really don't pick up on, but I think we can through all of these senses that we have. We may not know what that, how we know what that animal is communicating, but yet we, we know. Uh, in the book, I call that the oldest language. It's pre-verbal, and it may even predate most of the species that are alive today. Humans well, I mean, it makes a lot of that. it just makes a lot of sense. And I think, it, it, you know, uh, unfortunately, as you're saying, as the as we when we're born and as we evolved, we get further and further away from the ability to use those senses. I was thinking about, I mean, there are dogs that are trained to um, be able to be, know when a seizure is coming on. They that the people who have constant seizures will have dogs who are trained to be able to recognize the smells and I guess other things that um, that will occur before a person has a seizure and that obviously helps to save their lives and for in a lot of different situations. I was also thinking about when my kids were younger, uh, one of the things, one of these old pediatricians, he, he said, you know, I bring the one of my boys in and they were sick or they had a fever or I thought they were sick. And he would say, you know, there's always the look test. And he would sit sit him down and, and look at him and have him talk and walk. And, and he, he, he said, you can tell if someone's sick just by looking at them. If you're, you know, just by being, and if he was always so right. I mean, and that's sort of what you're talking about. And, and uh, without having to do a lot of tests necessarily, uh, but the look test, I always, I always think of that. That's what he described it as. What your physician had was a kind of deep empathy, and that really mm-hmm. is what we're talking about. And it's not just a feeling. I mean, it's, it's more than that. It's deeper even than just, you know, being able to relate to someone. This is a much deeper thing that we can develop, that some, many people have developed. By the way, you mentioned the... the um, uh, people with seizures that dogs can tell that that's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons that dogs are often used so often used as service animals. And I have a section in the book about uh, a young woman who uh, is on the autism spectrum and also has an additional problem of a, a kind of schizophrenia, one on top of the other. Her service dog, Kovo was trained to deal with this young woman's uh, uh, symptoms of autism. But this dog also learned on his own the symptoms of the schizophrenia when her when his, the, the young woman was hearing voices come from the toaster, that kind of thing. And he could respond. He taught himself how to respond to the to the schizophrenia uh, symptoms. One of the interesting things is this young woman. She tells a remarkable story in the book, and she uh, tells about how her dog's been attacked three times by dogs that have fake service dog vests on and there's a lot of this and first let me say that having companion animals is a good thing that's growing but that can be misused and what sometimes happens is that dogs who are not trained as true service animals but have that vest on them and you know in order to go into the store or the restaurant they don't know how to deal with other dogs in that setting and her dog Kobo has been attacked viciously three times by dogs in supermarkets 
What's great about her story, in addition to that, is that she has learned from Kobo how to comfort him when something traumatic happens for him. She does many of the things with him that he does with her when the voices come. She'll lean up against him. She'll use her weight to hold him down and hold him until he calms down. That's the same thing he does with her. That kind of deep empathy is, again, what we're talking about. Uh, there are so many stories, obviously, um, and so many to read about in your book. Uh, I don't know if you cover this in your book or not, but the the I don't know if it's even a, a growing kind of scientific way of detecting breast cancer that dogs can smell breast cancer uh, and diagnose it. I, I it just I, I guess almost in the same. W- statistically the same as if you have a, a mammogram or an, a, an ultrasound. Um, and I do, the, yeah, I do cover yeah. that in the book. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. That's, that's um, in, in terms of wild animals, too, again, this is extremely important that, that we realize that this is important to do with wild animals. And first, I should say that there was a story this morning in, in the newspaper, uh, I think in uh, North Carolina, that they went to a speech I gave at East Carolina University last month. And the, someone in the audience asked me, what's the most important thing we can do uh, to connect to other animals and to have that build into something larger to protect particularly wild animals? And uh, she reports that my answer, which I didn't <laughs> I don't remember right now, but my answer was there, she reported tell our stories, have these experiences, and then tell other people about them, particularly with wild animals. Um, the re- importance of that is that this is deep within us. We, our ancestors came back from the day and they sat around campfires and they told their stories about their animal encounters. Sometimes they danced out the stories. Their bodies became the animals they experienced. They became the bear. This is deep within us. And today, sometimes we're embarrassed to tell those stories, particularly about these soul-touching experiences we can have with other, with wild animals. Many of the stories in the book, and there are a lot of them, some of those stories uh, people had never told anyone before, before they told me, because they're embarrassed. But what they find is that the more they tell these stories, the more meaning they find in these stories for themselves. This is a great source of meaning in our lives that we neglect to a degree. Uh, so many of these stories are, are told by people in, in the book. All right. So given that, we do want people to read your book, also tell their stories, which, of course, encourages other people to tell their stories. Um, is there a website that we can go to or websites to get more information about the book and about the work that you're doing? Um, sure, there's a couple. First, my own website, which is uh, you can get there by naturedeficit.com, uh, naturedeficitdisorder.com, or my name, richardlove.com, and that's L-O-U-V. But there's another website, the Children in Nature Network, which is the nonprofit that grew out of my first book, which was Last Child in the Woods, which was about nature deficit disorder among children. And that's an organization you can get involved with. You can join it as well. Probably the easiest way, because these are complicated addresses for these books, is either to Google me or just go to Amazon. That has links to to these places, too, as well as my book. 
Thank you so much for being on the show today. Richard Louv, our wild calling, how connecting with animals can transform our lives and save theirs. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 